Well, thank you for the warm welcome. Good morning to each and every person in the main auditorium. Good morning to those of you who are joining us in the venue. And also, good morning to those of you who are joining us online. And for those of you who are first-time visitors, we hope that you feel loved. We hope that you feel welcomed. And we hope that you enjoy the service and come back to Carney E. Free. As Adrian said in the video, my wife and I, we are from the East Coast. We are from Philadelphia. And when we moved to Kearney, we recognized or we made some observations about the Kearney community that I want to reflect back to you. So I want to tell you about yourself. So the first observation that we made of the Kearney community is an observation about the driving in Kearney. <laughs> now, what we realized is that the pace of driving here seems like it is a little delayed. <laughs> but not only is the pace of driving a little de delayed, but there are some people in Kearney who think that using a turn signal is optional. But not only did we recognize this about the driving in Kearney, but we recognized that the residents in Kearney and in Nebraska, they love their freedom. But not, not only do they love their freedom, but there's something that I recognize about the men in particular in Kearney. The men in Kearney, number one, they love their guns. And then in number two, the men of Kearney, they love to go hunting. And one, one of the ways that the men uh, express their admiration or their respect for other men who are new into the community is that they invite them to go and hunt and they invite them to go and shoot. So I'd like to say to all the men in here, thank you for welcoming me with a bang and with violence. <laughs> but not only that, but one thing that is, was such a glaring observation in the Kearney community was that the Kearney community in Nebraska love, and some might say have an idolization of, and I'm sorry to say this, the corn husker football. <laughs> Kearney community, we love the corn huskers. And I was imagining, wouldn't it be great one day if the corn huskers actually won the big <laughs> 10? <laughs> If they actually won the Big Ten Conference, imagine how ecstatic people would be. Imagine how happy we would be. And this would be all over the news. It'll be on, it would be on Fox. It would be on CNN. It would be on YouTube. It, it would be on Instagram. It would be on ESPN and all the major outlets. And now imagine this. Imagine there was a small group of people who said that they actually did not win, or they said things about the event that wasn't true. Everybody in Nebraska, all two million people in Nebraska would, would rise up against this group and would tell this group that you are not right. There would be thousands of people, and we remember there was a time when the, when the Cornhuskers were great. 
There, were, there, there was a time when they were gladiators. There was a time when, when we were going to the games or if we were going to watch the games um, on, on TV, there, there was a time when the expectation was that we are going to dominate. There was the expectation that we are going to conquer. But now the expectation is who's going to dominate us? Now imagine... If they win, how happy people would be. But even better than thinking about the Cornhuskers winning the Big Ten Championship, even better than thinking about this huge victory that, the, that, that they would possibly have in the Big Ten, we have the greatest victory in history. We have the greatest victory in history, and the greatest victory in history that we have as the people of God is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, and this is what I want to talk about, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical event that happened in real space and time history. And today I want to talk to you about why the resurrection is real. Now, I want to place this disclaimer because we are going to put our student's hat on, and I'm going to put my professor, Hushai Severe hat on, and we are going to talk about the evidence of the resurrection. Now, when we're talking about the evidence of the resurrection, it's important to note that it's not the evidence of the resurrection that necessarily saves us, but it is the person who was resurrected who saves us. In other words, if the evidence of the resurrection does not lead us into an, and does not lead us into an enamored state, if the point, if the evidence of the of the resurrection does not lead you to being more enamored, does not lead you to being more um, to, to 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 seeing the the glory of Christ in all. Of his splendor and all of his his glory and all of his mercy and all of his majesty then it is superfluous the point of the evidence is to lead us into greater worship and, and into belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ it is to bolster our faith and before we discuss or be, before we go into the, the the scripture and I said I'm going to put on my professor hat, so please pay attention. There's a lot of information that we are going to pack into 28 minutes and 20 seconds now, going on 19 seconds. Are you ready? So, when we are talking about the resurrection, there are two questions that we need to wrestle with, or two preliminary discussions that we need to have about the, re about the resurrection. And number one is the reliability of the Gospels or the New Testament, and more specifically, the Gospels. And then number two and three is, did Jesus live? And if he lived, did he die? So num number one is the reliability of the Gospels. And one of the ways that the historians prove that a certain writing piece, but more specifically the Gospels, is authentic 
is when other writers of their time references their work, or in other words, other first century writers reference the gospel and the acts and what you see in the scriptures and what you see throughout history in the first and second and third century is that there is this early attestation to the apostles who wrote scripture. So, for instance, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, what you see Peter doing is Peter is acknowledging that Paul is writing Scripture. And in that day and time, Scripture, the word Scripture, referred to the Old Testament as authoritative. So what people in the first and second century did was they were referring to the works of other people as authoritative. But not only that... But there are something called the apostolic fathers. And the apostolic fathers were basically people who knew the apostles, who were trained by the apostles, who were trained in the traditions of the apostles in order to pass these traditions down, who were directly related to the apostles in the first and second century, and they referred to the writings of the apostles as scripture. But not only that, but reason number two is that the New Testament... And you can have confidence in your Bible because the New Testament or the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and all throughout the Bible, all throughout the New, 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 New Testament, it surpasses in quality and in quantity any historical first century document in the amount of copies that we have. And this is important because if we had time, I'd talk about textual criticism, which helps us in order to figure out the accuracy of the text. But now that we have established that Jesus lived, now that we established that the Gospels are real and the Gospels are a reliable text, we need to establish what, what what it says in the Gospels, and the Gospels claim that, number one, Jesus lived, and number two, Jesus died. Jesus lived. There was a first century historian named Josephus, and Josephus, his job was to write about what was going on in the first century in Jewish times, and this is what he said about Jesus. He, he said, now there was about this time Jesus so we see that this person in, in history, Josephus, right, writes about Jesus, and he says, Jesus, he was a wise man, and if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure, he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles, for he appeared to them alive again the third day as the divine prophets had foretold these. So his life leads us to ask, did Jesus really die on the cross? And there is a theory, it's called the apparent death theory, which, which purports that Jesus did not really die on the cross. Now, this is impossible uh, because in that time, when there were crucifixions, it was the job of the Roman soldiers to devour the person that was being crucified. It was their job to find out if they were dead. It was their job to literally kill the person. And this is what third century, there's a guy named Eusebius. Somebody say Eusebius. 
Oh, you guys did such a good job. Eusebius, a third century historian named Eusebius, who says this about crucifixions. He said, the sufferer's veins were laid bare. And the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. So thinking about all these things and all this historical evidence of people writing, it is hard to believe that Jesus did not die because the Roman soldiers wanted and it was their job to figure out and to ensure that someone was dead when they were being crucified. So now that we know that he lived and now that we can rely on the gospels and now that we know that Jesus died, what is the plausible evidence for Jesus's resurrection that we have? And these are the three points that you have in your bulletin. The resurrection is real because the tomb was and is empty. Number two, the resurrection is real because Jesus appeared to his disciples. And then number three, the resurrection is real because the disciples believed they had a strong conviction that, Jesus, that they saw the resurrected Jesus. And reasons, so reason number one. Now, before we jump into reason num number one, I, need, I just need to take you through, through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this is what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says. And one of the reasons why I'm reading this is because in the research, what the scholars were saying is that in this scripture that Paul writes, what Paul is actually doing is that he is quoting a creed. And one of the reasons why this is important is because a creed basically means that these are the things that we have established that we believe as a group, as a religious group. So, one, so early on, what you see with Christians is that after the resurrection of Jesus, within the first five to seven years or, one, or, or the first one to five years or one to seven years, what we see is that there are Christians who have an established belief, and Paul is picking up what he learned from Peter, possibly in Jerusalem, and this is a result of what he has learned, and this is a result of early Christians saying, this is what we believe, for it says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the, the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also to one abnormally born. And Paul gets this creed from early Christians, and it is established. So we have reasons to believe in the resurrections. And again, what are the reasons to believe in the resurrection? Number one reason why we can believe in the resurrection is because the tomb is empty. In the scriptures in John, and we are in John chapter 19, verse 38 until 20 to the end of 20, to the end of 20, which is verse 31. The tomb is empty. The resurrection is real because the tomb is empty. Now, 
This is the story. Joseph of, of Arimathea and Nicodemus went to Pilate and asked Pilate, are we able to have the body of Jesus in order to, bear, in order to, bear, in order to bury him? And they were afraid, so they did it in secret. And Pilate gave them the permission And then once they have the permission, they go and bury the body of Jesus. And then one day, Mary, three days later, she goes to the tomb, and she finds out that the tomb is empty. And in her worry and in her dismay, she runs to Peter and John, and she says, Peter and John, the tomb is empty. They have taken my Lord. I don't know why I just did a London accent. (laughs) You know when you're reading the Bible, you... You just have certain accents that you think that they, this is the way that they talk. So, <laughs> so they say that you've, you've taken my Lord. They've taken my Lord. And, and what's funny about the text is, is that when Peter and John finds out, the text says that Peter and John run to the tomb. And the Bible says that John outran Peter. And I think one of the reasons why John outran Peter was not what was, was because John was younger. But then also Peter, he was a little older and he had way too much runza. (laughs) The body, they couldn't see the, the body. Now there is this theory called the displaced body theory. Now follow me. The displaced body theory says that Jesus was in the tomb, but then Joseph removed his body. And first of all, here's why this theory is wrong. So under Jewish policy, number one, you were restricted from touching a corpse and removing it after burial. And then second, just think about it. If Joseph removed Jesus' body... He would have informed the disciples instead of allowing them to believe that he was resurrected. So it is highly improbable, and it does not stand as a plausible explanation. But look at verse 9 in chapter 20. Verse 9 in chapter 20, it says, They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So so after Peter and John get to the burial site, In their discouragement, in their dismay, they leave the the burial site and they are not aware that this is what the scriptures proved or this is what the Old Testament said about what would happen to Jesus. And one of the things that I found out during doing the, while I did the research for this is that there is something called a radiometric analysis. And radiometric analysis is basically a big word that means that we try to find out the age of something. And here's why this is so interesting. People did a radiometric analysis of Psalm chapter 22, verse 16, and Isaiah Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53, and what those two scriptures show us is that there are unique details that were given about the life of Jesus that people in his time had absolutely no power over. They did not know. For instance, here are the details in Psalm chapter 22, verse 16, and in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. It says, they pierce my hands and feet. 
He will be bruised, he, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. And what's interesting is that these are the prophecies, these prophecies were made hundreds of years before Jesus, and the systems that the Romans had were not in existence when these prophecies were made. All of these were fulfilled in Jesus. There's no, coincidence. There's no coincidence. So there had to be somewhat some intelligent design who inspired human authors to write about these things that were not necessarily established yet in their time. But the disciples completely missed the point. They completely were not aware of the prophecies of Jesus because they were so discouraged and because they were so dismayed. So the resurrection is real because the tomb is empty, but not only the resurrection is real because the tomb is empty, but the resurrection is real because Jesus appeared to his disciples. The resurrection is real because Jesus appeared to his disciples. Now, this scene is kind of humorous to me, but it's, it's actually not that, it's actually not, fun, it's not, it's not funny, but sometimes when you put your imagination into the text or you try to, you know, enter into the text as much as possible and be in the scene, here's what the text says. The Bible says that after Peter and John leaves, Mary, she is weeping. Mary, she is wailing because they took Jesus, or she thinks that they took Jesus. And then all, all of a sudden, two angels show up. And then the two angels say, why are you crying? And they did not use a London accent, an English accent. <laughs> they say, why are you crying? And then she, she says, they took my Jesus, they, and, and, and I don't know where they put him. And then all of a sudden, as she's talking to the angels, Jesus shows up. And then when Jesus shows up, Jesus asks her the same questions, and Jesus says, why are you crying? And then Jesus says, who are you, look, who are you looking for? <laughs> and Jesus, knowing that she's looking for him, but then still Mary did not realize who she was talking to. She did not realize who was talking to her. And then imagine this. Imagine being Jesus, and you went through all of this turmoil and all of this suffering. You were beaten, and you were in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating blood, and then you were beaten, and then after you were beaten, you were crucified, and then after you died, and then you come up with all power in your hands, and then this is what Mary says. Are you the gardener? And where did you place Jesus? Where did you place his body? Tell me where you place his body so that I can go and get him. And then Jesus is like this, Mary, really? And then after Jesus says Mary's name, she looks up and realizes that is Jesus. And, and, and then she grabs a hold of Jesus and she's praising God and she's so excited and she's so filled with hope and she's so filled with happiness and she's so filled with joy and she's so filled with expectation and she's holding on to Jesus and holding on to him. And then Jesus says, Mary, please get off me. Please let me go because I have work to do. And then Jesus says, go and tell the disciples what you have experienced. 
And then Jesus, and then while Mary is talking to the disciples and while Mary is explaining to the disciples and saying, I have seen my Lord, he has resurrected, but Thomas is not on the scene at this point of the story. Thomas, who's the doubter, and this is important, Thomas is not in the story. Jesus, now imagine being in, in a room and the, and the Bible says that the disciples were afraid. They gathered in a secluded space and they were afraid because they were afraid because of what happened to Jesus. And as she's telling them, and Thomas is not there, Jesus, and sh- Jesus shows up and says, yo, what's up? Peace. Peace be unto you. I am here. And I can imagine how startled the disciples were. And then Jesus shows up to other people. He shows up to 500 people. He shows up to in various places. He continues to show up. And some people would say that the resurrection isn't real because his disciples really did not see him. But what we say is that the resurrection is real because he appeared in physical form to the disciples. And opponents of, of Jesus' physical bodily resurrection would say that everybody who saw Jesus was hallucinating. And this is called the hallucination theory. And the hallucination theory is basically people hallucinating. It's in the name. <laughs> and the hallucination the- the- theory is wrong for a few reasons that the psychological research fully supports. Gary Collins, who is a psychologist who authored many books, and he's the former president of the National Association of Psychologists, said this about hallucinations. He said, hallucinations are individual occurrences, and by their nature, only one person can see a given hallucination at a time. They certainly aren't something which can be seen by a group of people Neither is it possible that one person could somehow induce or force someone or influence someone to have a hallucination. And since an hallucination exists only in this subjective, personal sense, it is obvious that others cannot witness it. And then furthermore, the disciples are in a state where they are dejected, where they are afraid. And the disciples are filled with disbelief, which means that they did not have any inclination to see or expect Jesus to return. They were not in the mind frame of hopefulness. And in addition to that, Gary Collins continues and says this, quote, hallucinations are comparably rare. They're usually caused by drugs or bodily deprivation, unquote. Saying that the disciples were hallucinating contradicts reliable psychological research findings. So now that we know that the tomb is empty and now that we, and that the, and that the disciples experienced the physical appearance of Jesus, let us look at the faith of the disciples, The resurrection is real because the disciples believed. They had strong conviction. After Jesus appeared to his disciples, they believed. Now, remember that the disciples were in a state of despondency and fear and unbelief. 
And let me ask you a question. If you've experienced, if you've ever experienced the death of a loved one, how good are you at projecting happiness? If they really meant something to you, are you really able to change your attitude three days after they've died? Absolutely not. The wounds are still fresh and they sting like no other. And in the same way, the disciples' attitude completely shifted, not because they were faking it, but because they talked to, engage with, and touched our risen Lord. And we need to ask ourselves, why would they be in a state of overwhelming fear, anxiety, and hopelessness that many of his disciples turn around and become, and, and, and become some of the most bold people on the planet? And in the face of opposition and many times death, the disciples did not recant their faith, but they remained in faith. They remained steadfast in their belief that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he appeared to them in bodily form. So what do we do with all this information? What, what do we do with the fact that we know that the gospels are reliable, we know that Jesus appeared to his disciples, we know that the tomb is empty, and we know that the disciples believed the best explanation for the empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus and the disciples is our risen Lord. And then once Jesus, in the first scene, once he appears to all of the disciples except for Thomas, the disciples go to Thomas and, and say to him, Thomas, we have seen the risen Lord. He is not dead Jesus is alive. And then Thomas says, I will not believe unless I have seen him. I will not believe unless I touch his hands. I will not believe unless I touch his wounds. I will not believe unless I touch his sides. And then as Thomas is saying this and as he is stuck in his doubt, stuck in his disbelief, Jesus shows up. Now, imagine saying that you won't believe, and, and then Jesus just shows up. Jesus shows up, and Thomas is, he's startled that Jesus shows up. And then, how Jesus deals, how Jesus deals with Thomas, it touches my heart, because Jesus invites he invites us to test our doubt. When Jesus sees Thomas, he doesn't, he doesn't condemn Thomas. But he invites Thomas into, into him. Jesus does not necessarily accept Thomas's doubt as much as he engages and gives reasons why Thomas should believe. And in the same way, Jesus does the same thing for us who struggle with doubt. For us who struggle with disbelief. Now, what, what do we do with this in information? Number one, I have six application points that I just want to share with you. Number one, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what you see is that 
Paul knows and he believes and he says that if the resurrection isn't real, then our faith is in vain. It's pointless. It's superfluous. It does not matter. And if, since we know that the resurrection is real, if you believe that the resurrection is real, we ought to take the claims of Jesus seriously and go back to the scriptures and read about Jesus in the gospels and what he said to his people. And then number three is that we ought to peek into our doubts and know that Jesus does not condemn you, but he encourages us to be curious about our doubts and seek into them and pray about them and do research about them. But not only that, number four is that as a result of the resurrection, we can have a relationship with God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that as a result of Jesus' resurrection, we have been justified. In other words, justification is when God declares us right with him and we can have a relationship with him. He died for our sins and was resurrected for our justification. But Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says that, that we have, as a result of the resurrection, we have new life. You are not the same anymore. The same way that Jesus died and he rose again, the Bible says that we identify with his death and we identify with his resurrection. So we, those of us who believe, we have resurrection life. But not only that, sin no longer has dominion over us anymore. The Bible says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As a result of the resurrection, a Christian cannot say that this sin has more power over me because it is not true. If you have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you have, the, you have crossed over from death unto life and you can say no to sin. You can say no to your addictions. You can say no to those things that call your name, that affects your mind, that affects your heart, that affects your relationships, that affects your family as a result of the resurrection, as the praise team comes up. As a result of the resurrection, we are dead to our sins and we do not have to say yes to them anymore. They no longer have power over us. But as a result of the resurrection, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says that we have a living hope. We have a living hope. We have Jesus to look forward to. We have a new life to look forward to. We have life to look forward to even on earth. So my brothers and sisters, as you wrestle with the, the evidence, I pray that, the, that, the, that you would not stop at the evidence, but you would stop at believing, and in believing, we have eternal life. Let us pray. God, thank you so much for the fact that the resurrection is real, and we thank you that you, we have reliable evidence of the resurrection. And as a result of us having reliable evidence of the resurrection, Lord, it leads us, or we pray that it leads us to you, that this information will not just be information to puff us up, but it would be information that would enable us to believe, and in, and in believing, we would have 
eternal life. It's in your name I pray. Amen.